All right, we are back. We do obituaries sometimes in the top of the third segment, but we've, I think, given up the practice in lieu of having access to an internet-only version of this show, in which we plan to do something like, I don't know, three or four months of obituaries sometime soon. But uh, we have to mention the passing of Leonard Nimoy, who played one of the great characters in the history of television and the history of science fiction, and the person of Mr. Spock. This correspondent was inspired by the passing of Leonard Nimoy to go back and look at uh, a Star Trek episode I'd not seen since it aired. That was in 1967. Holy mackerel. You Trekkie fans know all about this, I'm sure, but it was called The Menagerie and was based on the pilot, the original pilot for the Star Trek series, which apparently did not sell. They, they shot a second pilot with the, the crew that became those familiar to us, Kirk, McCoy, Spock, Chekhov, etc., Oh, and let us not forget Lieutenant Uhura. But the original pilot featured actor Jeffrey Hunter. But I gather some along the way that production was running so slow that, that Gene Roddenberry decided to combine footage from the original pilot with some subsequent footage and blend them together in a two-part series. Now, it turned out the only major character among the ship's officers who was in both the original pilot and the subsequent series was Leonard Nimoy Spock. He was then obviously the central character in The Menagerie. He thus became the glue that held The Menagerie together. I'll have to say, Jeffrey Hunter was pretty good at, as Captain Christopher Pike. And uh, you can certainly do worse than to follow my lead and use whatever means you have at your disposal to check out um, that, uh, that wonderful episode from 1967, The Menagerie. As a supplement to our brief mention of Leonard Nimoy, we should mention the passing of Harve Bennett. He was a TV producer who had a lot of success with the Mod Squad and the Six Million Dollar Man who got involved in the Star Trek franchise after they made the first film. Now, I think the first Star Trek film is not bad. It's got some pretty interesting elements to it, but many people found it rather slow and boring. So they decided to spice things up when they did Star Trek Part Two, And that's where Harv Bennett got involved with the franchise. He uh, went back and looked at all the original TV series episodes and decided that the one that involved... Ricardo Montalban, as Khan Noonien Singh, would be the perfect villain to bring back on the big screen. And although I don't know that I can speak for the whole Star Trek community, I think that it is widely accepted that the Wrath of Khan was the best of all of them. Harv Bennett used to like to point out that the New York Times review of the second movie, Wrath of Khan, began with, Now that's more like it! Bennett said, I'll, I'll never forget that. I'd like that on my tombstone. Anyway, we'll have more to say about Star Trek, Mr. Spock, Leonard Nimoy, etc. on a future program. And Mr. McMillan does vow, in respect to late Mr. Nimoy, never to again play his rendition of Bilbo Baggins on Radio Parallax, which we have to agree was not Mr. Nimoy's high point as a creative artist. Something else I was inspired by with the, the death of the late, great Leonard Nimoy and looking back at the Star Trek episode was to pull off the shelf a sci-fi classic I'd not seen in many years, Blade Runner. Do have to note that the layers of complexity you see in a film like Blade Runner really ratcheted up a notch from the likes of, you know, ordinary sci-fi. And I guess we should compliment um, the real-life flying skills of Decker, the protagonist in Blade Runner, and also Han Solo in uh, Star Wars, had to land his plane on a golf fairway after an aborted takeoff from uh, Santa Monica Airport. 
By all accounts, Harrison Ford did everything right and put his aircraft down onto the fairway without anyone being hurt. Although I understand he had his bell rung pretty good by the whole process and was asking people, where am I? As they were pulling him out of the airplane. But uh, there's an old adage in aviation that any landing you can walk away from is a good one. And I guess by that standard, uh, he certainly made a good landing. Of course, I'm trying to think what the corollary to that is. I'm trying to remember what the, the definition of a great landing was. I believe it's, it's one in which the aircraft is still usable. By the way, when it comes to obituaries, we are going to talk a bit about the passing of Boris Nemtsov, the leader of Russia's reformers who was shot dead on February 27th. That's, that's worth talking a bit about, but we don't have any time today, unfortunately. All right, let's talk a bit about the, the whole UC follies. In fact, we have to ask at this point whether we're talking about the University of California or a bordello. Apparently, University of California President Janet Napolitano went before the Assembly Budget Subcommittee and said that unless state funding is increased beyond the 4% hike that Jerry Brown has proposed for next year, the university will cap in-state admissions at last year levels and add 2,000 new slots for out-of-state and out-of-country students. Now, it's noted that non-resident admissions to UC pay a premium of about $23,000 on top of tuition. So this is all about the money. We're going to cap state students and sell off slots at the University of California to people who pay more. We need to get Neil Rood back on the program here to continue our discussion about UC. Apparently, Napolitano said, we will not be admitting students that we don't know that we actually have funding for. Democratic Assembly Speaker Tony Atkins slammed her plan, expressing frustration over UC's latest attempt to use students as bargaining chips. We would refer you to the graph in the article by Alexei Kosov in the Sacramento Bee showing UC non-resident freshman enrollment over the past 10 years. Boy, talk about a bunch of hockey stick graphs. Let's look at the five biggest UC campuses, Berkeley, Davis, Irvine, LA, and San Diego. Their respective enrollments for non-resident freshmen have gone up respectively from 9% to 30%, from 3% to 19%, from 3% to 21%, from 8% to 30%, and from 4% to 28%. What is wrong with this picture? Those giant increases are obviously based solely on the fact that the out-of-state and out-of-country students have to pay more. Does this not imply that the children of California residents are being passed over in favor of out-of-state and foreign students? Anyway, I think that's all that I have the stomach for on today's program, talking about this stuff. I do want to pose a query to the listenership as to when do you think it was that C-SPAN got taken over by the Koch brothers? Doing some random viewing of, uh, of C-SPAN and channel surfing, and I stumbled upon one talk at the Richard Nixon Library from a clown named Van Hip. What, what, what I was fascinated by was seeing Ed Nixon, Richard Nixon's brother, and boy, is he a chip off the old block, introducing Mr. Hip, who then went on a long propagandistic tirade about how defense dollars are needed, and that Edward Teller was this hero because he, was man- he managed to get around David Stockman, who knew that these schemes Teller wanted to propose for the SDI would bankrupt the country. But to hear Hip tell it, well, thank God Teller was able to prevail, and thanks to the White House science advisor, was able to get that uh, fateful meeting with Ronald Reagan, where he convinced Reagan that (laughs) off-the-shelf technology could shoot missiles down. 
30 years later, this remains as big a fantasy as it was back in 1983. But by the time Mr. Hip got done addressing his audience, you'd think that, oh my God, the Republic will fail unless we get back to doing more of this defense spending. Then I saw a chump talking at the Reagan Library named Scott Taylor, described as ex-Navy SEAL sniper and Fox News contributor. He's written a book titled Trust Betrayed, Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton, and the Selling Out of America's National Security. As you might imagine, he had also a somewhat pro-Republican skew to his diatribe. But watching him in action was pretty interesting. This is a guy who may be wrong, and in fact, I'm here to tell you is wrong, but is never in doubt. So I'm hoping that on the balance, uh, C-SPAN is more fair and balanced. I don't know. We keep watching. All right, in the four minutes we have left, I think I'll just jump to a strange and miscellaneous topic about, of all things, the Ollie Holmes fight. There was quite a brilliant documentary on late night TV by people who were there. They shot footage before that fateful 1980 fight, planning to make a documentary about it. When they got done, they found out people weren't too interested in seeing this footage. They nevertheless persevered and went ahead and made this documentary, which is quite fascinating. And it lies a tale of how money, greed, and stupidity can just trump both logic, but also just doing what's right. For those who weren't alive at that time, I would point out that Muhammad Ali was coaxed out of retirement in 1980 to fight heavyweight champion Larry Holmes. Ali was 38 at the time, Holmes was 30, and in the prime of his fighting life. What's amazing to this correspondent was that the odds in the fight started out as 3-1 to one in favor of Holmes, but by the time the fight day came around, it was 6.5 to Holmes to 5.5 for Ali leading me to suspect that somewhere along the way, Las Vegas gambling interests were able to make a killing somehow on the fact that Ali was not going to win this fight, but he was going to be the emotional favorite of the crowd. The horrifying thing in this documentary is that you can see with your own eyes how Ali does not have it, and he seems to be coming apart before the fight. Ali's physician, Dr. Ferdy Pacheco, told the documentary filmmakers that... um, Everybody that was involved with this fight should have been put in jail. And sadly, one of the worst aspects about it was a case of medical malpractice. Apparently, the personal physician of Elijah Muhammad, the leader of the Nation of Islam, diagnosed Ali based on nothing, that he must be low in thyroid. He then gave Ali 100 thyroid tablets, which Ali, instead of taking one a day, began taking three a day. When the fight day came, Ali had nothing. He lost 10 straight rounds, and rather handily to Larry Holmes before the fight was mercifully stopped in round 10. Freddy Pacheco told the story of how Ali had gotten a uh, medical exam at the Mayo Clinic, and they found that he had problems with the finger-to-nose test. He was not able to hop as well as they expected. His speech was a bit slurred. He was in no condition to ever fight again after probably the thriller in Manila, at which point Ferdy Pacheco resigned as Ali's physician saying, you must never fight again. Anyway, pretty sad story, but if you ever get a chance to see this documentary, Muhammad vs. Larry, I suggest that you do check it out. It's painful to see, but, but there's lessons to be learned. All right. Final item of the show in the last minute is that it was the 50th anniversary this past month of the march in Selma, Alabama that turned violent. 
If you're old enough to remember watching television back in that era, and I am, you were stunned by what you saw on the TV screen. Vicious and nasty violence directed against black people peacefully protesting. This and other activities by civil rights workers were to lead to the Voting Rights Act of 1965 which was sadly needed to ensure that blacks could vote because all the constitutional amendments and rights that had been granted them had been ignored for the previous 90 or so years. It's a sad episode in our history, but it is a reminder that, you know, one can overcome. And I think that'd be a good note to end today. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I am your host, Douglas Everett, and I look forward to talking to you again next week for show number 666. It's going to be fun.